This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. Torrential rain has fallen in Gaza in recent days, flooding some of the refugee camps. It's estimated that 85% of people in Gaza have now fled their homes. Many are living in tents without floors, so the dirt has become mud. And there are growing concerns about disease and the dropping temperatures. We have just one blanket between all of us. Five people with only one blanket. Intense fighting is continuing too. Israel says Hamas must be eliminated and the hostages must be released. But international pressure is growing and this week the UN voted overwhelmingly for a ceasefire. 153 in favour, 10 against, 23 abstentions. Draft resolution A-ES10 has been adopted. For the first time, Australia shifted its position, voting for that ceasefire. We see the pauses as a critical step on the path of sustainable permanent ceasefire. Uh, as I've said previously, such ceasefire cannot be one-sided. The US is continuing to support Israel, but criticism from President Joe Biden is getting louder too. So can the international community change the course of the war? Shashank Joshi is the defence editor at The Economist. The most important shift that we've seen has been in the United States. There's been opposition to the war in calls for a ceasefire from Arab countries and also from the European Union for some time. What's different is the fact that the US President Joe Biden is openly and publicly describing Israel's bombing as indiscriminate and is openly saying that Israel is losing global support. That's a huge problem for the Israeli government, and it indicates both US concern over Israeli tactics and civilian harm in Gaza, as well as domestic political considerations given mounting opposition to the conflict within the Democratic Party and the fact that Joe Biden has elections looming next year, which will be extremely difficult for him. So the US is becoming more outspoken, yet the other key development this week was a UN vote for a ceasefire. The overwhelming majority of countries voted for that ceasefire, including some allies like Australia. But the US, it's clear, is still voting with Israel. The US is really straddling a strange line, which is to say that it has severe concerns over Israeli tactics, but it continues to veto a ceasefire. It also continues to defend the war in public, saying that Israel has a right to attack Hamas. And it, perhaps most importantly of all, continues to supply Israel with the weapons that it is using to be able to wage this conflict, notably the air-to-ground munitions that it's dropping on Gaza. Now, in private, what my colleagues at The Economist understand is that the uh, American government is telling Israel, that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is telling Israel that they have to wrap this up by the new year. That is, there are a couple of weeks left to run before the Americans will say, that's it, you have to stop now. Whereas the Israelis are arguing, we need at least another month if we're able to durably defeat Hamas in the way that our original goals prescribe. 
I was going to ask about those goals because when this war started, Israel had two main goals. One was to free the hostages and the other to eliminate Hamas. So what does that elimination look like? Is there a point where Israel can say, job done, even if some Hamas fighters still exist? I think it can. I think, though, it would have to go much further than today. The current estimate that it has killed around 6,000 Hamas fighters out of perhaps 25 or 30,000, it's maybe destroyed half of or degraded half of Hamas's combat battalions, which are each each, each perhaps kind of, uh, you know, a, a thousand or so people. Um, and, and it has killed a number of mid-level commanders, but it hasn't killed any of the top three officials in Hamas, notably Yahya Sinwar, the key official in Gaza in Hamas whom they want to kill. So I think it, it could be the case that, that Israel has effectively reduced Hamas as a military force. It cannot repeat October 7th. It cannot fire a large volume of rockets. It cannot govern Gaza. That would be enough, I think, for Israeli politicians to say we have functionally defeated Hamas, but we are some way from that point. And I currently am skeptical that we will get to that point by the new year or the point at which the Americans run out of patience. Is it even possible to completely eliminate Hamas? I think we need to distinguish here between military victories and political victories. And Israel can impose a military defeat on Hamas by effectively uh, destroying a significant proportion of its combat capability and leadership. But a political victory is much harder to achieve because, um, first of all, Hamas is not just a military movement. It's a political, social and economic movement. It has civil servants, doctors, teachers, lawyers. It has run Gaza for 16 years, which is vital to note. You know, the Taliban ran Kabul for what was about five years before they were toppled in 2001. ISIS ran Mosul for a, a couple of years, a few years before they were toppled in 2016, 2017. So this is a, a deeply embedded and rooted force. And of course, even if it is rooted out, it is also an ideology. And the most worrying thing for Israel, I think, is the indications we're seeing that both in the West Bank and in Gaza, support for Hamas, while not at majority level, is growing, is rising rather than falling over the course of this campaign. And I think the big concern is that, um, that you know, Hamas is able to regenerate in the longer term and indeed find new sources of support, even once the guns fall silent. It is incredibly difficult to gaze into a crystal ball here, but if the fighting is still continuing in the new year and the humanitarian situation in Gaza is continuing to deteriorate, do you think the US will take a harder line with Israel? I think it's highly likely that it would. I think that we're seeing indications of that. Joe Biden would not have criticised Israel so publicly and so harshly, describing indiscriminate bombing in recent days, had he not been trying to send a clear signal to the Israeli government that its time was running out. And I'd be surprised if we don't see these kind of critical public statements grow in the weeks ahead and come to a head um, in the period after Christmas. If and when the fighting does stop, the rebuild of Gaza is huge and the Israeli government is certainly arguing that it would have to maintain some sort of security presence. Is there any group that would be willing to control Gaza under those kind of conditions? Um, there are some Arab countries who may be willing to play a role in funding or underwriting the reconstruction and security of Gaza or even putting troops into Gaza. But I think the overwhelming problem is they would not want to do so just to be adjuncts or collaborators with Israel. And they expect Israel to 
articulate support for a two-state solution leading to a sovereign Palestinian state if they're going to do that. And Israel's not willing to do that right now. What they don't want is simply to run Gaza while Israel continues to sit in northern Gaza, as it says it will for a while, uh, to maintain security, um, effectively maintaining an occupation on behalf of, of Israel. So right now, the, the, the Israeli government isn't willing to accept political conditions and steps that would be necessary for an outside force to take control of Gaza, which means they will be left in control of it, um, which means they will effectively be occupying it in a way that will impose upon them many, many legal obligations like providing humanitarian aid and providing social services, administration. And I think they are not willing to take on those obligations. So what is likely for the future of Gaza? There's a few pathways. We could see a complete vacuum of power in Gaza, an ungoverned space, chaotic chaos. We could see Hamas reassert themselves in that chaos or another splinter organization in the way that Islamic State emerged from the chaos of post-invasion Iraq in the 2000s. We could see Israel sit in the northern half of Gaza, around Gaza City, effectively occupying it as a kind of undeclared occupation for months or for years to come. Uh, We could see a full Israeli occupation, as unlikely as that is. Or we could see um, a the Palestinian Authority come in, backed by arms and peacekeepers and aid from Arab countries or even from the West. Those are all options. I'm afraid right now, on current trends, the chaos option is looking the most likely, with with Israel sitting in the north and chaos in the south, with periodic airstrikes and raids continuing for years to come. But that does depend on the choices made by all the political actors in this conflict. Shashank Joshi, defence editor at The Economist. There were fiery scenes in federal court this week when journalist Lisa Wilkinson defended her Logie speech and her reporting while on the stand at Bruce Lemon's defamation trial. Lisa Wilkinson interviewed Brittany Higgins on the project back in 2021, with Brittany Higgins alleging she had been raped in Parliament House in 2019. Bruce Lemon was not named in that coverage, but has claimed he was identifiable and is suing Network 10 and Lisa Wilkinson for defamation. Bruce Lemon's criminal trial was aborted last year after juror misconduct and there remains no finding against him. The ABC's court reporter Patrick Bell has been following the defamation case at the federal court. One of the first questions Lisa Wilkinson was asked was actually about something quite different and that was her speech at last year's Logie Awards which ultimately led to a delay in Bruce Lehrman's criminal trial. Now, that trial was ultimately abandoned after juror misconduct, leaving no findings against Mr Lehrman. But in that Logie speech, uh, Ms Wilkinson referred to Ms Higgins' unwavering courage and made other comments uh, that uh, was argued in court at the time uh, endorsed Brittany Higgins' complaint and implied that it was true. Uh, and the publicity of that led to a delay in the trial. So Ms Wilkinson hadn't really been asked publicly about that until this week when uh, she took to the witness box. Mr Lehrman's barrister, Matthew Richardson, put it to her that it was a reckless and ill-advised speech and that she put her pride and ego ahead of giving Mr Lehrman a fair trial. She disputed that and said that she had sought advice uh, on giving the speech beforehand, uh, although the account of her and the former ACT top prosecutor who gave her that advice is disputed. Uh, And she also said she couldn't be in the minds of the audience and uh, she didn't intend to imply that it was true 
Uh, and uh, if that is an interpretation they've drawn, then she couldn't be responsible for that. Uh, she's also been asked uh, about some of the uh, inconsistencies and uh, other queries that she had observed and raised in Brittany Higgins' account as they were gathering information for this story. And it was asked of Lisa Wilkinson how she raised any concerns she had with Brittany Higgins' account. And uh, there was one particular issue where uh, she felt that there needed to be more questions asked of Ms Higgins uh, on uh, a claim that she'd made that her phone had been wiped. And Ms Wilkinson told the court that, in fact, that was not her responsibility, that all communication with Brittany Higgins was going through a producer, that being Angus Llewellyn, who's also given evidence this week. So Lisa Wilkinson making some effort to distance herself from those efforts. And some fairly fiery scenes we saw too. Certainly. Uh, it was put to Lisa Wilkinson that her motivation for telling this story was in fact uh, a commercial motive, that she was captivated by the commercial prospects of this story and essentially that it would rate very well on television. And her response to that was to ask Matthew Richardson not to make out that she was a cheap tabloid journalist in her words. So Lisa Wilkinson fervently defending her journalistic credibility. And the reason this is important is because Network 10 is part of its defence uh, are arguing a qualified privilege defence uh, in addition to trying to prove the truth of their reporting. Uh, and that means that uh, they're arguing that the, the story was so important and, and had such a public interest that uh, even if they couldn't be sure of the, the truth of Ms Higgins' allegation, they had to do the story and the fallout was so massive, they had to do it. Uh, and so Mr Lehrman's team are, are trying to argue that's not the reason at all and that they are in fact motivated by ratings uh, and the commercial success. Also surfacing this week during the trial was it was a secret recording obtained by Sky News. What's been alleged to be on that recording? Well, this was a very unexpected twist. Uh, this recording that Sky News obtained and then reported on uh, is alleged to have been secretly recorded by someone who overheard a conversation between Brittany Higgins' lawyer, Leon Zwire, her fiancé, David Shiraz, and her good friend, Emma Webster, who's often her support person uh, in court as well. Uh, they were discussing uh, some of uh, Miss Higgins' Um, answers uh, in cross-examination and how she might respond to certain questions while her cross-examination was still happening. Now, the reason that's important is uh, witnesses who are under cross-examination are instructed not to discuss their evidence with anyone at that time. Now, not even Sky News suggested that uh, that information and the, that advice had been passed on to Ms Higgins. It said it had no evidence of, having, of that having occurred. But nonetheless, Bruce Lehrman's legal team subpoenaed this recording uh, and uh, went through it to try and uh, see if there was anything uh, that might prompt them to make some other application, whether that was to recall Brittany Higgins as a witness or, or something else. Uh, but that seems unlikely at this stage. And it's not the only secret recording that's come up in this trial either, right? No, uh, for some time we had known that Brittany Higgins had recorded secretly 
two conversations she had just before resigning from uh, her work with Senator Michaelia Cash. One of those was with her chief of staff, and one was with both the chief of staff and the minister on the phone. Uh, and in that second conversation, uh, Michaelia Cash can be heard saying words to the effect of, I'm sorry, Brittany, we didn't know, nobody told us. We did hear uh, those recordings played in court, and uh, that was rather extraordinary to hear uh, some of the, the back and forth there uh, and, and particularly discussion of um, some of the experiences Brittany Higgins was having at the time. She told uh, her chief of staff in one of those conversations she'd been having PTSD-like panic attacks and couldn't return to Parliament House and that that was one of the reasons that prompted her resignation. We know that she resigned uh, shortly thereafter, and uh, it wasn't long before she went public with this allegation. So we've heard now from Bruce Lehrman, from Brittany Higgins, and now Lisa Wilkinson. What else are we expecting? One of the critical witnesses we've not heard from yet is Fiona Brown, who was the chief of staff in Linda Reynolds' ministerial office at the time of uh, Brittany Higgins' alleged rape, at the time she made this allegation first in March 2019. Uh, she uh, has uh, indicated that she is uh, willing to assist the court and willing to give evidence. We also are yet to hear from some of the expert evidence in this case, and that includes a toxicologist who will testify as to uh, Brittany Higgins' level of intoxication on the night in question, and also uh, in a rather extraordinary turn of events, uh, the judge in this case has allowed uh, the evidence of a lip reader from the United Kingdom who has examined CCTV footage of uh, Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lehman at the Canberra pub they were at on that night and uh, has prepared something of a transcript uh, which the judge has accepted uh, to be admitted as evidence. Uh, it, there is still quite a bit to come even in the last days of this case and uh, it had hoped that this week would be the last week but uh, it is pushing through until the week before Christmas and Justice Michael Lee is, uh, he's told the court he's content with that as long as it doesn't push into the week after. ABC Court Reporter Patrick Bell. As concern grows about the housing crisis and the cost of living, there's been plenty of focus recently on Australia's migration numbers. We've seen a dramatic increase in the number of migrants coming to Australia, but of course, during the pandemic, there were nearly no new arrivals. This week, the government released its 10-year migration strategy, vowing to fix Australia's broken system and reduce temporary migration in favour of permanent, highly skilled workers. It's really hard to get those high-skill workers that we desperately need here, but we've made it much too easy for people to use side door and back door entries into our workforce. And the primary way that is happening at the moment is through international education. And we need to fix that immediately. But will the changes make much difference to our migration intake? Dr Rachel Stevens is a research fellow at the Australian Catholic University. Yeah, so the government has provided statistics that will show the net overseas migrant forecast declining over the next four or five years. But if you look at more in more detail at these numbers, you'll see that most of the reduction would have happened regardless of government intervention. So, for example, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, has talked about what it calls the phenomenon of the catch-up effect 
in the post-pandemic world. So, of course, during the pandemic years, borders were closed, so Australia was not receiving any migrants, basically. And once the borders reopened last year, we have this massive uptick in migration, but that was temporary. And ABS thinks this catch-up effect is by and large over. Can you give us a, a sense of what we've heard this week and what's changing when it comes to our migration strategy? So I think the first is reducing the number of migrants in this state of what the Labor government calls permanent temporariness. So the government is offering new pathways to permanent residency, which will ultimately be access to citizenship. So, for example, New Zealand nationals have been granted a pathway to permanent residency and they've also introduced this new skills in demand visa that, again, will have built-in access to permanent residency. I think these are all good things. The second area this strategy is trying to address is reducing the exploitation of skilled migrant workers. And one way they're doing that is by decoupling a skilled migrant's visa from their employer. And this is a really good thing because, as you can imagine, when the employer sponsors a migrant's visa, that gives the employer a huge amount of power over their migrant employee. And so with these reforms, a migrant worker will be able to quit their job and have 180 days to find another employer to sponsor their visa and can continue to work during those uh, 180 days. That's a really important reform. But when we're talking about exploitation of migrant workers, this strategy only addresses skilled migrants. So those who come on skilled migrant visas. It doesn't address those on unskilled visas or the palm workers, the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme workers, so the guest workers we can't, we have from the Pacific Islands who largely work in Australian agriculture. There are also changes when it comes to international students. What's happening there? Yeah, so I think for many international students, life may become a bit harder. So in terms of admissions, Students will need to pass a higher bar for English language proficiency. And it's also important to note that the age limit for temporary graduate visas will be reduced from 50 to 35. So we see a restricting of access to the temporary graduate visa for many of our international students. There will also be greater scrutiny of FET applications from so-called ghost colleges and a handful of universities such as Federation University, which is considered high risk. And the last one, last point is really a very practical point. It's the reintroduction of a work cap for international students to 48 hours per fortnight during semester. So for international students, they'll be forced to live off and possibly pay for their tuition fees from 24 hours of work per week. So this may push them into the cash economy or the black market just to make ends meet. And in doing so, may make them more vulnerable to exploitation. There has been a bit of a pushback this week from some of the international student sector. Now, they obviously, some of these organisations stand to lose a lot of money here. Is it fair for them to be concerned that this is getting too tight and too restrictive on who can come here? I mean, I don't think so because you've got to remember when you look at the data, most international students are coming to Australia to study at our best universities. They're not, you know, yes, there is a a cohort that will be studying at so-called ghost colleges or vet colleges. But I think, you know, when it comes to Australian higher education, universities are so reliant on international students as a source of revenue and they're engaging in very aggressive marketing strategies to recruit more and more students. So I don't think international students is going to decline. I think overall the trend will be upward. But from the point of view of the students themselves, I think they have every right to be quite annoyed about the government's, I would say, a case of government overreach, you know, in terms of dictating how many hours they can work each 
each fortnight during a semester because it should really be up to the individual to determine that. We don't put that onus on domestic students. And certainly as a university lecturer, I had many students who were working way too much and not doing enough study. And yet we put the same, we put that expectation on international students. So I think that's a bit unfair. Immigration has been a political football in Australia for a long time. Do you feel like that issue is is heating up again as there are growing concerns about cost of living and housing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually quite worried about this. So when we think about the last sort of 20, 30 years, immigration has been depoliticized while asylum seekers has been politicized. So I would say one of the great successes of the of the Australian immigration program has its been its ability to sort of fly under the radar. But I, I think we are seeing this change in this past sort of six months or so. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. So, for example, you know, the arrival of a boat of asylum seekers in Western Australia last month, the High Court's decision ending indefinite detention of stateless asylum seekers, Peter Dutton and his opposition party have been able to very effectively paint the Labor government as weak on border enforcement. And there's a very long history of the coalition outmaneuvering the Labor Party on immigration matters. And so I'm really concerned in the way in which in public discourse, immigrants, as you say, are being used as, you know, a scapegoat for the housing crisis or the costs of living pressures. So I think the Labor government needs to be very careful about what it's doing. Like it might see a temporary bump in the polls as a result of its rhetoric on immigration, but, you know, is it worth, you know, creating social divisions that will take a very long time to ameliorate Obviously, there is this perception that migration does impact on issues like housing. Do we have any hard data about how much it does or if it does? I think it's important to remember with, you know, international students, for example, I mean, in the housing sector, they occupy a very niche market. You know, in, in Sydney or in Melbourne, there are the CBDs are filled with student housing. And so if we didn't have international students, those skyscrapers uh, would be empty. And that's certainly what happened in Melbourne during the pandemic when borders were closed and international students left Australia. So we need to be mindful that, you know, although it's very easy to blame immigrants for a range of social ills, it's very rarely the correct approach. And you've got to think about in terms of, you know, housing supply, we've got to think about the taxation policy in this country, the influence of interest rate rises. So it's a very complex area. Um, and I think it's uh, risky and misleading just to put to try to explain a complex policy issue with a simple cause. Dr Rachel Stevens from the Australian Catholic University. And that's the episode for the week. It's produced by Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time.